This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we're seeing a lot of growth in the sector of telemedicine and telehealth of late. And increasingly, it's the nation's retailers who are leading the way. Well, that's right, Mark. The popular Northeast grocery store chain Wegmans has just announced an expansion of their virtual health visit program, an affiliation with Doctors on Demand in which customers can log on between 7 a.m. and 11 p.m. for a visit with a board-certified physician or psychologist, and they can do it through their tablet, their smartphone, or their computer. Wegmans has consistently been ranked as the top grocery store chain in America, and its leadership sees consumer telehealth as not only a great service for customers, but really the wave of the future and a way to promote economy and healthcare spending. This comes on the heels of an announcement by Walgreens Pharmacy to expand telehealth programs into 25 states. Walgreens leadership touts the notion that the modern health consumers taking the same anytime, anywhere approach to the purchasing habits in the healthcare space. And it's not just about convenience, Margaret. It's also about the value as consumers becoming more aware of their health expenditures and how much is coming out of their own pockets. Well, conversely, Mark, the healthcare establishment, that's moving forward a little more cautiously. At the recent meeting of the American Medical Association, leadership decided to shelve to a future date a decision on setting medical ethics standards in telemedicine. And the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid issued a final rule for accountable care organizations, allowing some more flexibility in the use of telehealth. Such care will be covered in about 80% of the so-called next-generation ACOs, but not all. But suffice to say, consumer pressure to engage in telehealth is only going to increase moving forward, and it's bound to have a significant impact on the healthcare delivery landscape. Meanwhile, we're not only seeing a trend of consumers seeking care online, clinicians and medical students are increasingly going online to advance their medical knowledge. Our guest today is a thought leader in that arena. Well, Dr. C. Michael Gibson is the founder and chairman of the board of the nonprofit WikiDoc Foundation, the world's largest open source textbook of medicine. And he's aiming to make the world's medical knowledge open sourced and readily accessible to all interested people around the world. Really quite amazing. Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, stops by. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, but no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. C. Michael Gibson in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. With the Supreme Court decision on the legality of the tax subsidies under the Affordable Care Act weighing in the balance, the president says he will continue to fight for the law that statistically has gained favor with the majority of Americans. And according to a recent Commonwealth Fund study, that statement bears out. 86% of people who are currently insured through the Affordable Care Act marketplace plans or newly covered by Medicaid are very or somewhat satisfied with their coverage. Nearly 7 of 10 adults with new coverage have used it to get health care. Many said they previously wouldn't have been able to afford that care in the past. The administration is seeking to frame the narrative in case justices rule in King versus Burwell against the law's federal subsidies, setting the stage to blame the high court or congressional Republicans for any resulting coverage losses. And millions indeed will be anticipated to lose coverage should the subsidies be made illegal in 37 states. One of the goals of the Affordable Care Act is to reduce the 
events of rehospitalization within 30 days of being released. But a study shows hospitals are failing at that task for a simple lack of follow-up with a discharged patient. The study co-authored by the University of San Francisco showed about 8 percent rehospitalizations in those states where they could actually analyze such data. About 8 percent of the patients returned within three days, more than previous estimates. And one in five patients made a repeat visit over the next month. And golf is reportedly the most actively engaged in sport for adults into their senior years. And it turns out it's really not a bad workout at all. Golfers equipped with Fitbits were analyzed for their overall steps taken and calories burned. Turns out walking the course for an 18-hole game brings the average person to the recommended 10,000 steps a day and beyond, burning about 2,000 calories, too. Problem is, most Americans use a cart to get from T to T, although analysis of the cart users showed far fewer steps taken, about 2,800 steps. They still burned well over 1,000 calories. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with uh, Dr. C. Michael Gibson, founder and chairman of the board of the nonprofit WikiDoc Foundation and the world's largest open source textbook of medicine. Dr. Gibson is an interventional cardiologist and researcher who served as director of the coronary care unit at Beth Israel Hospital at Harvard Medical School, where he's also a professor. He's currently a full-time interventional cardiologist and chief of clinical research in the cardiovascular division at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He created the academic research organization Perfuse and is editor-in-chief of the Clinical Research News. He's also earned numerous awards and distinctions, including being named one of America's top doctors by U.S. News and World Report. He received his B.S., M.S., and M.D. from the University of Chicago. Dr. Gibson, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Great. Well, thanks for having me on the show today. Yeah. You know, we have a saying at our organization that healthcare is a right and not a privilege. And as founder of uh, Wikidoc, you seem to be saying that access to medical education is a, a right and not a privilege. And as you've certainly created the world's largest open source medical textbook of medicine, can you tell our listeners about the origin of this idea and why it's so important to improve access to medical information? I think you're right. In a TED Talk, I think I stated something similar, that uh, really access to -to up-to-date medical education and content should also be a right. Uh, But unfortunately, so much of that information is cloistered away or hidden away behind paywalls so that only those who can pay can access the information. If you have something that could help someone with a life-threatening condition, why wouldn't you be willing to share it for free? So in the United States, I think we have the perception that many healthcare providers are very well paid. That's certainly not the case around the world. Mm -hmm. There are countries uh, out there where a physician makes maybe $100 a month, and the cost of access on the computer is, say, $500 a year. So they're really locked out of uh, getting up-to-date medical information. So we do serve an international audience, and one of our goals is to assure that not just the U.S., but developing Mm -hmm. countries uh, also have access to the same kinds of information. Many young people who want to become doctors have to pay $1,500 for a few months of access 
to questions to help them prepare mm-hmm. for those tests that allow them to qualify to become a doctor. And we are about to release 18,000 free questions that they can all use uh, to prepare to take those examinations. Uh, so we want to make sure both patients and doctors and trainees, all of them have unfettered access mm-hmm. to critical information. Well, Dr. Gibson, it's a very uh, egalitarian approach uh, that you're taking to sharing this really vast and still always rapidly changing medical knowledge base. But it, it seems inevitable almost that uh, you'll come up against some powerful forces and, and companies that have proprietary control over medical textbooks and uh, research articles and the like. And I wonder if you could uh, share with us a little bit about uh, what you've called your copy left approach to gathering and disseminating all of this information written by others to counter the copyright uh, infringement or potential infringement issues. How have you been able to bypass that on Wikidoc and what are some of the challenges that you're running into? By the way, copy left is not a term that I uh, invented. It really is a true legal term, just huh. like copyright. Interesting. Uh, copyright began when we had the printing press. Suddenly, you could make many thousands of copies of something. And the king became very nervous that, oh my gosh, what if someone says something bad about the king? Now they have a way to distribute it very rapidly. And they decided they needed to give people the right to copy. That's why it's called copyright. Well, after a while, Parliament convinced the King of England, for instance, that, you know, you got to kind of loosen up on the censorship. And still, until recently, the people who owned the printing press owned the content. (laughs) Well, now that we're in the Internet age and now that the cost of storing it is pennies and the cost of distribution is negligible, the issue of, you know, ownership really becomes moot. And we now have uh, very easy ways to distribute the content, as you've heard, to millions of people uh, very simply and, and freely. And the copyleft doctrine says this. You're able to share that content and put it on other sites or to distribute it. That's the whole goal. As long as you give attribution mm-hmm. to the person who originally created the content. Uh, so I, seeing how angry I'm making everyone, I think I must be on the right <laughs> You're doing a great job. Good measure. You know, Margaret mentioned that the, uh, the rapidly changing uh, medical knowledge. I think, uh, you know, obviously uh, you have an enormous task at Wikidoc to keep timely information up. And I know Wikipedia works on sort of an open source participation. And I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners how you managed to uh, uh, do this open source editing on over 160,000 pages that you have on Wikidoc. But illuminate us on how all of this gets managed on issues that are obviously of vital importance to them. Yeah. We do have some bi-directional flow of content between us and Wikipedia. I think our aims are a little different. Uh, Wikipedia is more uh, of a general information source. Sometimes it's a little too complicated for patients, mm-hmm. and that's why we branched out to have Wikipatient, which is written at an eighth grade level for mm-hmm. patients. And then we have Wikidoc, which is for doctors, which is written at least as a level of a generalist, if not a, a specialist. But for instance, with one disease, 
it may have, I don't know, 15 to 20 chapters. So, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about the pathophysiology as a chapter, uh, the diagnosis, the treatment. You see how one disease can get multiplied into 15 to 20 micro chapters. And we divided it up that way. So if you want to go straight to the diagnostic section, you go there. You don't have to fumble through everything to kind of find that area. Many thousands of those are drugs. And what we've done is we've assembled a team of 20 people who just wrapped up the project of going to the FDA labels, Mm -hmm. creating the content straight from verified, Mm -hmm. credible information. Mm -hmm. We went straight to the source to make sure we had the most credible information for doctors. We also have content from the National Library of Medicine written at the eighth grade level for patients. And drugs are one of the most widely looked up things. And uh, so we've made a lot of effort to make sure we have very credible drug content. On the disease side, I kind of divide the world into two phases. The first phase is kind of building the Eiffel Tower, and the second phase is painting it repeatedly. You know, the structure of the Eiffel Tower never changes, but, you know, like the Golden Gate Bridge, Mm -hmm. it's always being repainted. And we're getting to the point where we've created the Eiffel Tower. Our goal is to create and work with some philanthropers to fund, uh, you know, world experts and those around them to keep the content green or updated. You know, the sounds of heart murmurs are never going to change. The treatment, though, may Mm -hmm. change every few years. And what we need is a group of people to, you know, watch over the medical literature and all these different subspecialties and keep it green. So we're about to complete the base content. It's taken 10 years. Mm We've had a 100 full-time, they do nothing but work on this, full-time volunteers working with me here in Boston, uh, people making a million edits of the content over those 10 years. Mm -hmm. I personally made 80,000 edits to the site. I meet with the team every single morning. We review uh, everything that every single person is working on, uh, and we have a, a, a pretty intense process of scrutiny. So, you know, that's how we do all that we can to assure that the content is accurate. But the ultimate peer review is, you know, an mm-hmm. international audience. Sure. You know, and if they find errors, they write to us and, yep. and we rapidly correct it. Perfect. Well, you know, we've talked about the democratization of the medical information um, and the democratization of access. So the, the next, I guess, area of democratization is medical education itself. Clearly, you know, there are efforts underway to address a need to educate more healthcare providers, and that's not just around the globe, but here in the U.S. Can you share your, your vision for Wikidoc and its role in this larger picture and how you think this might disrupt in an innovative way the status quo for both medical education and, and also even the continuing medical education units that all healthcare professionals uh, are required to maintain over time? Doctors learn by looking things up. They learn a little bit by sitting in classrooms, but I think the main way you learn is when you have a problem, Mm -hmm. you go and you you search and you look up everything related to that problem. We want to uh, give doctors credit for the time that they're spending researching and learning what we call micro-CME or Uh micro-continuing medical education. And, you know, rather than saying, I spent one hour in some classroom, rather than that, why not give someone one minute and 13 seconds of 
unbelievably intense, you know, time that they're looking something up and learning is credit. And you build a bank where you say, you know, uh, Dr. Smith got one hour and 13 seconds today, three minutes, 43 seconds uh, tomorrow looking up topics. And that's how you measure a doctor's engagement in the continuing education process. So uh, we've embarked on that with some collaborations that we are about to sign with some major medical institutions to offer that kind of credit. So we hope to shift away from CME to micro CME. Mm -hmm. Obviously, on the larger issue of education, kind of massive online educational efforts are gaining a lot of momentum. And both my sons attended MIT. I know a lot of the content Mm -hmm. you can get for free uh, at MIT. I often wonder, did either of them ever go to class? online. Micro class. <laughs> yeah, you know, micro class, I guess. I think you'll see a growing movement in that regard. We want to play a central role in being the repository of all that ed- educational content. But I do think what you'll end up paying for in the future is more the piece of paper, the certificate, whereas hopefully the true content, the content itself will hopefully be free. We're speaking today with Dr. C. Michael Gibson, founder and chairman of the board of the nonprofit WikiDoc Foundation, the world's largest open source textbook of medicine. Dr. Gibson served as the director of the coronary care unit at Beth Israel Hospital at Harvard Medical School, where he's also a professor. Uh, Let's just take a look at some of the research uh, being conducted in new ways, and not only in your field in cardiology, but also across the spectrum. We're seeing the rises in things like patients like me and smart patients and the Apple uh, new research kit. And you've been conducting longitudinal studies on cardiac protocol in multiple countries around the world. What kind of potential do you see from this increase in patient engagement and new and improved data sharing technologies well, I think the potential is massive. Um, sadly, every time one of we do we do one of these trials that I lead at say 800 centers around the world, we have to redesign the whole thing. We have to start all over again. We have to create a database, and you know uh, that costs ten thousand dollars for every question that you want to ask, and it's millions of dollars just to design the study. The idea that we would be able to use the same infrastructure over and over and Mm. over again is very, very appealing because it's much more economical. And we do have these registries in different societies where the data is already being entered, so we can tap into it. All we need to do is then randomize someone to one treatment uh, or the other. I think the problem comes in where you begin to have issues surrounding governance. You know, who owns this data? Who gets to decide, you know, what treatments people are randomized to. What's the role of the patient in deciding who's going to get randomized to what? So it's going to be an interesting conversation. Patients should be aware with some of the smart devices and everything that their information is going to be shared with others. They have to be comfortable with the privacy concerns that might arise. And then big data sounds very attractive. But unless you do research in a way where you're asking a question, where you're randomizing people by chance to one strategy or the other, it becomes very hard to make uh, causal inferences about what's going Mm -hmm. on. You can't just say, you 
you know, people who on their app say they eat more dark chocolate uh, have, you know, better outcomes than people who don't. That's not randomized mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the people eating dark chocolate may be completely different than the people not eating chocolate. I mean, I hate to pick on chocolate, but it's either <laughs> chocolate, wine, coffee. That's right. You know, every week you see yep. uh, different results. And, and all this is because the research is very poorly done because mm-hmm. it's not being randomized. Mm-hmm. So big data doesn't mean that you get the right answer. You can have unbelievable certainty because of the numbers of people and reach the wrong conclusion. You know, my son works in genetics, in quantitative genetics, and the p-value or the number of zeros that precedes that final number has to be 50 digits before they reach a statistical conclusion because they're doing so many tests. So a great tool, but um, it's like a Ferrari. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to know how to drive it. Well, Dr. Gibson, you've been able to conduct hundreds of global studies, certainly with the support of uh, the research community at Harvard and also through your own research organization, Perfuse. Cardiovascular disease is a leading killer in this country and around the world. What, uh, in your estimation, are some of the more exciting potential breakthroughs for treating cardiovascular disease? Well, I've been really lucky to participate in some of the... Uh, trials related to stents, you know, the things mm-hmm. that pop the arteries open and mm-hmm. keep them open, and the blood thinners, things that make your blood not clot. And that's been very rewarding over the past 20 to 30 years. We've improved mortality by about 30% with all that we do now mm-hmm. compared to just 10 years ago. However, putting a stent in or going on a blood thinner is a little bit like putting your seatbelt on mm-hmm. after you've had the car accident. Um, you know, there's already a problem when you're having a stent put in. We need to back things up and prevent all these problems. There's a new class of drugs called the PCSK9 inhibitors, which dramatically lower your cholesterol levels down to the, gosh, 30 to 50 range, you know, uh, bringing us back to where we were as hunter-gatherers. So lower bad cholesterol will be more and more achievable. On the other hand, I'm running a trial where we're actually going to be infusing real, true, human, good cholesterol. The good cholesterol is like the dump trucks that take away all the fat in your arteries. Well, we're going to be giving people good cholesterol, good garbage trucks, and see, you know, if we can uh, improve improve uh, their outcomes uh, dramatically. And then heart failure, we often save many lives and we we have people living longer, but um, they're kind of the walking wounded. They are walking around with bad heart Mm -hmm. pumps, and and that's another big area we need to work on. Uh, Dr. Gibson, let's talk uh, about a word that seems to come up quite a bit in uh, your world, and that's collaboration. And you say in the old days, the credo in medicine was to publish or perish, and the new mantra is to collaborate or perish. And I want to say that's music to our ears. But tell our listeners how this new paradigm is altering the landscape in medical education, the practice of medicine in general, and perhaps most especially in accelerating the pace of research. Well, uh, it wasn't too long ago that things worked like this. You know, someone made an interesting observation. Then they worked with industry to say, what if we made this mousetrap? What if we made this innovation? 
And the industry said, yes, let's do that. And at a single hospital, uh, they would deploy that innovation like a stent. And the guy at the single hospital would publish his experience with that new technology. That is so 1990s. You know, we've moved from single center observation and trials now to multi-center and multinational trials uh, because the numbers of patients that are required to really show benefits at this point are very large, tens, twenties, thousands of patients. So in order to make, you know, bold claims, it requires a lot of bold data and a lot of big data, as we've just been talking about, from around the world. And, you know, if you're going to try and enroll 20,000 patients in a trial to answer a question, it takes a lot of collaboration. We've been speaking today with Dr. C. Michael Gibson, interventional cardiologist, founder and chairman of Wikidoc, the world's largest open source textbook of medicine. You can learn more about his work by following him on Twitter at C. Michael Gibson or going to wikidoc.org. Dr. Gibson, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thanks for having me, guys. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? President Obama made some misleading claims in a speech boasting of the accomplishments of the Affordable Care Act. Let's look at one of them. Obama said that before the ACA was passed, 85% of Americans already had health insurance, which is about right. He went on to say that those Americans still got, quote, a better deal under the health care law, mentioning that insurers can't deny people based on pre-existing conditions, can't charge women more than men, or put annual or lifetime caps on coverage. That's all true. But the new protections aren't a better deal for everyone. Before the ACA, premiums on the individual market, where people buy their own insurance, could be significantly lower for those who were young and healthy. Not anymore. The ACA doesn't allow insurers to vary rates based on health status. The law also requires a certain level of minimum benefit standards. That's good news for some, such as people with health conditions that boosted their premiums or affected the coverage they could get. Others now pay more, as basic plans for healthy folks are no longer available. With such major changes to how the individual market is priced, there were going to be some who got better deals and others who didn't. Even Kathleen Sebelius, the former Health and Human Services Secretary, acknowledged that before the exchanges launched. In March 2013, she said that women would see lower costs and men would pay more. Older customers could see a lower premium and younger ones could see an increase. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. 
Falling is a common experience among the elderly, and that is not good news. If you're over 65 and you've fallen and broken your hip, 25% of them will die within 12 months. Another 25% will never be able to live independently, and a full 75% will never regain full mobility. That statistic got former airbag executive Drew Lucatos thinking, what if you could apply the technology used in airbags to create wearable devices that protect a person from the impact of falling? So similar to the auto industry, our government has spent billions in about two decades on fall prevention programs for the elderly. What I'm suggesting is we make that same strategic shift that the auto industry did, and we begin focusing on intelligent protection of our elderly. So they did their research and found a combination of accelerometers and other sensors on the band worn around the waist could deploy within six milliseconds of sensing an imminent fall, and protective bags unfurl around the hip joints before impact with the floor. With the right technology, we can ensure that these people that meet that inevitable immovable object, which is the floor, can not only survive that accident, they can walk away. He founded Active Protect Technologies, and while his initial focus was providing a significant barrier to devastating injury in adults, he has additional potential markets as well. With this type of technology, we can protect against concussions. We can now protect Coumadin patients. We can protect our military soldiers from IEDs. A simple retooling of airbag technology in a wearable device that could greatly reduce the devastation of hip fractures, leading to better health outcomes and better quality of life. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.